welcome back to the Sustainability Spotlights podcast. Our goal on this podcast is to identify and unpack issues that lie at the intersection of sustainability, law, and development rights. Earlier this month, you might have heard, but the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference brought countries together to discuss a perennial question, how to tackle climate change. COP26, the 26th such global conference, engaged various stakeholders and government representatives over two weeks of talks. But the question remains, which voices need to be better heard and how can we, as a global community, work together to make meaningful change and craft tangible climate change agreements? So we're here today with Professor Aaron Mills from the Faculty of Law, and we're excited to talk to him about broadly about settler indigenous relations and the broader context of transnational and environmental agreements and policies. Uh, we're open and excited to see where the conversation takes us and we've prepared some guiding questions on the themes below. Uh, so firstly, what are your personal reflections or takeaways from COP26 given its implications for indigenous peoples? Well, it's nice to be chatting with you both today. Um, I suspect there are many folks you could speak with uh, who would engage in a detailed way uh, on the various outcomes. And the premise of their responses would be that um, they're invested in the idea their real change will come through um, this mechanism. But I'm not one of those folks. And so I actually didn't follow in real time. I'm one of the folks who read the, um, rep the report afterwards. And uh, some of the media coverage uh, and I read the report in, in some detail, but um, I think that COP as a general mechanism, so not just this 26th one, um, is important, but it's important because of the way it helps to shape um, national and international discourse around climate change. I, because of the way power is structured, uh, in this mechanism and through the UN more generally, um, I don't have a great deal of faith that any sort of transformative change, which is the kind of change urgently needed, um, is ever going to come through these sorts of dialogues. So I don't, I don't mean to be uh, dismissive, but I'm, I'm very, I give a very qualified sense of the kind of importance that I attach to um, this meeting. And on the note of uh, Indigenous peoples' inclusion uh, in COP26 negotiations, there was a lot of news surrounding Indigenous activists not being able to access the spaces, not having their voices heard. Um, so, so what are some of your thoughts on how the international community could better include Indigenous voices in future climate legislation? Um, well, at the risk of sounding naive, I think they just have to want to. They just have to want to do so. Um, uh, I, I, I think uh, Indigenous folks are savvy, uh, have a, a pretty well-oiled communications machine at this point, um, and have clearly communicated that they have knowledge that desperately needs to be part of this conversation. Um, I have a hard time accepting the reasonableness of ongoing standing issues. Um, and so I, I think all of that is the way it is because that's how the folks who hold the keys uh, want it. And so ultimately it's, it's actually not the right question to ask what sort of mechanisms could be put in place to facilitate that. I think the answer to that is actually very, very straightforward. Um, there's certainly pragmatic elements that are probably not easy, but as sort of a normative issue, that's pretty straightforward. 
Um, and so really the, the answer is how can we motivate the folks in power to want to hear from indigenous folks to make those allowances? And on the topic of uh, issues within the climate legislation itself, um, some Indigenous activists for COP26 suggested Indigenous rights safeguards must be included in the text of climate agreements so countries don't violate Indigenous rights to meet climate action plans. Um, have you considered how those safeguards might look or what they should look like and what are some ways to kind of make those potentially legally binding in national legislation? Right. Uh, I've turned my mind to none of those questions. And yeah, I, I think that um, those folks are absolutely right to have insisted on Indigenous rights safeguards um, for all the reasons they mentioned. Uh, Market-based mechanisms cloaked as nature-based um, mechanisms uh, put Indigenous folks at risk. There are tons of case studies around the world, um, globally in many different nation states showing this. Uh, with hydroelectric dams, uh, monocrops, uh, and indigenous displacement, and, and of course, even murder. Um, and so I think insofar as one thinks that uh, approaches COP strategically, it's quite essential that these kinds of safeguards get put in place um, because uh, it helps uh, quite obviously uh, indigenous persons and peoples um, in the, at a very fundamental level of survival even. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, in an effort to green uh, their economies, uh, there's, a, a, I think, a proven risk that uh, certain nation states will run roughshod uh, over the welfare of Indigenous peoples. But, but I guess where I part ways with some of these activists is I want to say it only goes that far. I don't think that um, having those kinds of Indigenous rights inserted um, is actually going to lead to a sustainable solution. Um, I think it's a basement level um, adjustment. And so I wholeheartedly support um, those policy shifts. Um, but, but ultimately, again, within my initial caveat, um, they, they support strategic changes. And those changes are urgent. And so I, I really don't want to be dismissive of them. I just want to be very clear that that's all, they, that's all they can do. And so often indigenous activists are among the most motivated uh, to address climate change. And I think there's a real ceiling on what can be achieved uh, with the inclusion of something like indigenous rights, whether it's safeguards or more broadly in the context of climate change. So stemming off of that, would you say then that national agreements are the place to focus on um, Indigenous rights issues? Um, or do you think that, uh, you spoke a little bit to this, but do you think that because it, it's tough to get um, this transformative change on an international level, do you think that we first need to focus on a domestic level? Um, I think... Well, I have to be careful here. Um, it would be hard for me to sort of rank importances in the different arenas. Um, I guess my overarching perspective is that indigenous peoples need to carefully assess uh, which forms are going to put them 
in a better discursive situation? Um, and I think the answer to that will actually change from country to country. So there are certain uh, indigenous peoples that have achieved um, pretty significant results through the inter-American system. Uh, there are other indigenous folks for whom uh, uh, that system applies, but has not been particularly helpful. Uh, same with the UN more broadly. And then there are other indigenous folks who find very, very little traction under domestic legal regimes. So again, I, I'm you know, sort of consistently returning to my baseline point, which is any of uh, any sort of action engaging these uh, formal governance systems has to be strategic. And so if that's sort of the organizing criterion, then indigenous actors just need to be informed in the choices they make. So my answer, I suppose, that's a long-winded way of saying, it depends. <laughs> Very fair. External to um, kind of formal governance methods, so international organizations or just national governments, um, some Indigenous activists around in COP26 also suggested they should create their own Indigenous-led climate uh, change convention and bring that forward to domestic governments to sign on to or the international community at large. Um, is there room for that? Would that be something that would be would be helpful in a way potentially to get around some of the uh, limitations of working within kind of colonial systems that don't uh, acknowledge uh, indigenous voices or aren't set up to kind of ever acknowledge indigenous voices. So I love most of that idea. So I think that's a, a very significant step in the right direction. Um, predictably by this point, uh, my worry is sort of the endpoint that the 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 purpose is still to constrain uh, formal power. And so to produce something that folks sign on to. And if they could ever do that, that would be outstanding, right? I, I mean, I would fully support something like that. But I think the, the still larger benefit, I think indigenous folks need to look to benefactors to fund them to have their own conference globally, uh, where they can control the narrative uh, and talk about real transformative change and organize. Uh, and so primarily, uh, sorry, primary to this um, idea would be a positive project of actually transforming relations on earth to work with earth. Um, but I think there'd also be a secondary shaming function. And so consistent with the kinds of um, earth-centered practices that allow all of us to flourish together and uh, the continued viability of life on earth. Um, we also need to talk about other forms of oppression because they're all interconnected. And so if we, if indigenous folks um, controlled the room rather than just wanting a seat at the table, all the dialogues uh, would be much more more complex still, even than they already are, or perhaps complex for different reasons, right? There wouldn't be as much of the sort of atomistic parties um, jockeying uh, to sort of look to be doing something while conceding very little in terms of their own economic base. Um, I think today, much of the complexity comes from those sorts of concerns and that sort of background that's brought into an event like COP. And so the complexity would be very different we would be looking at the way issues like climate change, uh, colonialism, 
uh, state militarization all interconnect. That's that's a really good point. And I guess jumping off of that colonial narrative that often the UN has been seen to per perpetuate, uh, do you think that there's um, a, a way to maybe start to reform the system in terms of having the UN and other actors on the international stage uh, better understand what the indigenous system and way of thinking is. I'm thinking of this given um, the fact that we, we are all law students and lawyers and law academics, and we are in a profession that could benefit from understanding indigenous perspectives better. So I just thought that your perspective on that would be useful as well. Well, I appreciate the question and I especially appreciate the framing and your communication of the stakes in the question. And so, you know, I'm, I'm here at McGill because I care very, very deeply um, about fostering the potential of students to go out and make a difference. Um, and I, it may sound trite, but, you know, it's, it's actually quite commonplace uh, within uh, my, within Anishinaabe communities to talk about, you know, youth quite sincerely as the future, <laughs> not in a sort of dismissive way, but, you know, very sincerely. Um, and so I think my first task is really to encourage that. And I, I really do feel that um, young folks can make all the difference. I don't think that's hokey. I, and so, but I, I, and so to the extent that folks armed with the real knowledge of how indigenous law, indigenous thought more broadly works, even just those those um, relatively narrow aspects that can be taught in a place like a law school where we teach indigenous law, right? I mean, it's just a thin slice of what it's actually about. I'm always very transparent about that in my own courses, but folks who get even that much and are able to bring it into UN bodies, um, various legal institutions and political institutions within domestic states, I'm all for that. And I, I want to encourage them to. And I think, especially if we get lucky now and then where one of the folks who has that has other gifts like charisma and is able to sort of, you know, communicate the message in ways where it can, it's more likely to be received. Um, those are, those are just good things. And it is possible to, to really have some impact there. Um, I think there are, structural limitations like if, if the if the problem were merely systemic then i'd be very optimistic and say maybe that's actually enough to overcome it we just get the enough of the right people thinking the right way but it isn't it's structural and so there's a hard-baked element um which is much much uh more difficult to to shift and so my my worry for young folks who are extremely idealistic is uh, how easy it is to be unknowingly co-opted by these systems. And, and so I would want to, anyone who was really gung-ho about making change uh, in this formal participation kind of way, I, I would want to support them by saying, be very eyes wide open, because you may not actually know this is happening and until you're fairly far along. Um, so I, I so to sum that up, uh, yes, 
I, I think great things can come from that. It's still not where I'm, I'm putting my cards though. We still haven't got to that. <laughs> um, and finally, just speaking to structural limitations and the dangers of co-optation by opting into those structures. Um, a alternate way of fighting for um, climate uh, change policy has been through grassroots resistance, which um, through some reports, it's been said that indigenous activists led resistance to pipeline expansions or other resource extraction policies have delayed greenhouse gas pollution over the past year. Uh, do you think then that grassroots resistance is a more kind of viable route for resistance, especially for young people who kind of might be co-opted by entering into structures uh, that have their, their limitations? Well, I think it depends on what we mean quite specifically by resistance. So I think you've you've nailed it with grassroots, um, but that's all of us. That's not just uh, you know indigenous communities or individuals uh, who choose to form communities of interest around climate change. I think that's every person on Turtle Island. Um, resistance. When we're talking about the things that most of us typically mean when we think about resistance. I want to shunt all that into the same category as the other stuff. So it's not formal power, but it's just strategic tools. And the thing that rightly, I, I would argue, shunts it into that group is it's incapable of producing transformative change. So it's they're just more tools in the box uh, to try and have some tangible effects and hopefully uh, to shift the discourse uh, a little bit so that it makes all kinds of um, actions uh, more likely to succeed, um, but also incapable. So if we think of like land-based resistance, all that kind of stuff, uh, blockading, all that, those sorts of things, I think they have very specific purposes and they'll never produce transformative change. And so the approach which I advocate, which is taught by virtually all of my elders, but first and foremost, you know, I learned it through my grandmother, um, is um, one has to be the change. That's to say the means are constitutive of the ends. So you can't have a transformed world um, by exercising power over other people. Even if one's end is honorable, even altruistic, if the means are not, um, they're not actually going to align with the end that one hopes to bring about. The only way to do that, for instance, to achieve reconciliation is to act, to be reconciliation. And so, you know, for the, in terms of the TRC stuff, this is to me like the single statement that they got most right, that reconciliation isn't just a result, it's also a process. That's an alternative framing of the point I just made, right? Is that the only way you can achieve a certain end is to have it also be the means of getting there. And so if we want to live in ways that are truly earth sustaining, we have to understand how the earth works so that we can act in those ways. It, it's, it's not, so, so for me, I'm very much with the critics, um, um, of the Glasgow deal is saying that um, any sort of market-based mechanism is ultimately a smoke show to make, uh, to, to you know, secure power for the global North. Um, 
really, I mean, I would go much further and say that even like rights of nature and these sort of quite obviously well-intended um, approaches to the problem of climate change are also wrongheaded. It's not about um, attributing legal personhood to the earth. Again, strategic gains, great. But transformative change, the thing that's actually going to save us all, and we are in need of saving, we have to understand that we actually are the earth. There is no, there has never been any nature-culture divide. And in my Anishinaabe way, I would say we are the order of creation, which has forgotten the great law. So for me, the questions are all about what can that look like for all of our diverse and interconnected and differently situated communities today from within the, 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 the deeply messy moment we occupy. We can't be ideal about it, but my sort of rough and ready answer is that it's going to be some vision of mutual aid because that's how the earth works. Those are the kinds of politics that avoid problems like anthropogenic climate change. That was really insightful. I found that the just as you spoke to mutual aid and the fact that the, the conceptions of the, and not to speak for all indigenous peoples, but the conceptions of, um, for example, if we take the Anishinaabe are different, their starting points are different, um, their conception of law is different. And I know that we both learned a lot from this conversation. We appreciate your time. And thanks very much, Professor Mills. I just add one last thing, and it's because it's so important. Um, I so regularly run into folks who are understandably nervous about performing a politics based on Indigenous law, because we live in a moment where um, the response to cultural appropriation is quite vicious. That's another debate. And so I make no comment uh, on the rightness or wrongness of those kinds of responses. I have one, but just not here, not now. Um, but one side effect has made non-Indigenous folks, I think, reticent to engage. And that's deeply detrimental to my project because my project is an open invitation for everyone, quite virtually everyone, literally, I should say, not virtually, literally everyone. And so it's not about using Anishinaabe stories or Anishinaabe earth teachings, but it's to, to do so, to do those things from one's own standpoint. And that's actually what treaty was meant to do. So everyone on Turtle Island here already has an open invitation to live mutual aid, to, to do, that's what it was supposed to be from the outset. So I just wanna clarify that when I made that comment, Indigenous folks are certainly its exemplars. And I, I think the greatest resource of strength we have on how to do this successfully, even despite our colonial damage, many of us still remember and live it out today. But ultimately, it is something that is for everyone. So I'm also very grateful to have been able to participate in this conversation today. And I thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.